Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you're blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church or its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to connect.redchurch.org.au. We are in the midst of our Lent series, uh, which is called No Greater Love. And what Lent is, is this process where we symbolically walk with Jesus towards the cross, towards Easter, towards Good Friday, where Jesus gave his life upon the cross for us, and on Easter Sunday, where he rose from the dead. And what we do in this time, as we walk towards uh, Lent uh, and Easter, during this Lent period, as we walk towards Easter, is we look at different elements of Jesus's life, and perhaps things that we may not have seen. We look at the ways in which the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, points towards Jesus's coming. And we're going to do that today, and we're going to actually begin with a psalm which points towards this, and we're going to begin at the first psalm in verse 1, which is Psalm 1, verse 1. And what I really want to do today is the reason we're going to look at this psalm is I want to point out towards an element of what Jesus brings into the world. Jesus brings wisdom. Jesus brings wisdom into the world. Jesus shows for us the way back to wisdom. So to understand that, let's read from Psalm 1, verse 1. It's also going to be on the screen there. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Three very physical words. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. This passage speaks of two places to stand, two environments to inhabit. And I want to argue today that this points the way to wisdom. Now, this points the way to somewhere to stand in a very confusing world. This was true when this psalm was written, but it's particularly true for us today. We live in a world which at many times seems like a disorientating torrent of information. Ten years ago, five years ago, often this information was stupid things about celebrities. That's still happening. Pointless stuff, jingles, advertising uh, campaigns, stuff that got stuck in your brain. But increasingly, as the world seems to move into crises, those torrents of information is filled with shocking, disturbing, and sometimes even addictive bites of information which seem to have little or no context. And this leaves us with a question, what do I do with this, all this information that I seem to swim in every day? How do I understand it? How do I place it? Where can I stand to understand where this is all going? Now, all around us, we're provided with experts and commentators and lifestyle gurus and analysts who are constantly trying to narrate what is happening in the world, what we should do about it. But those people seem themselves to have little idea of where this is all going. We have heaps of information 
but little understanding. We can see more than we've ever seen before, yet we struggle for a place to see how this all fits into everything else. One example struck me this week when something happened on social media. Now, it wasn't something that happened at the Oscars, but I did go onto social media as when I saw what was happening at the Oscars to try and understand it. Again, a classic example, who's in the right, who's wrong? Should that person have slapped someone? Should that person have insulted someone? How do we understand this event? Went on myself to try and work out what was going on. But then I was, I was, my attention was grabbed by an alert that came up. I was looking at Twitter and an alert came up which grabbed my attention and it said breaking. I'm a sucker for the word breaking. It's like, oh wow, here's some information that you know, you're gonna know before anyone else. First one on the scene. Breaking, major incident declared at Cancun Airport, Mexico. Major incident happening at this Mexican airport. I stayed online a bit longer. Then came a second update, not long after. Gunfire heard at Cancun Airport. I start to think, you know, what could this be? I'm getting these torrents, this, this torrents, this, this information flows just beginning. First a few bursts, but then more information. The next image is then actual video of people streaming out of Cancun Airport, like people running out. Then another video, more people running out of the terminals, running out into the car parks. Something major is happening in Cancun Airport. I start to try and analyze this myself. Is this like a firefight, a gunfight between Mexican drug cartels that has happened once or twice before in Mexican airports. I think it happened in Mexico City, but also Cancun is where lots of Americans and Canadians come and go on their holidays. What's gonna be the big implications for this? Then I saw another video. It was said at the top, Mexican special forces and SWAT teams are now piling into the airport. Like, wow, this is getting really serious now. Again, a video of people who are tourists running in one direction out of the terminal while guys in military uniforms with assault rifles and bulletproof vests are running into the terminal. What is going on? Then it gets seemingly more dramatic. Sounds of a large explosion coming from Cancun Airport. I'm following this. This is now like an hour has passed by. I'm sort of checking this. You get lost in these moments. Massive story. And I'm thinking, mate, maybe this is terrorism. What's going on? And then an update, update, situation secure, source of the sound of the explosion is discovered. Was it a firefight? No. Were there guns involved? There were no guns. Was it a bomb? No. What had caused this pandemonium? Then a picture is put up online as what was the center of this great chaos. A tourist had been looking at these signs that had like photos on them. And as often happens, you've got a back on your, uh, sorry, backpack on, you don't know, turned and knocked this sign over, causing a large bang, which then sent people running and set off this entire chain of events. Now, for about an hour, I felt like I was at the center of a major global crisis. I was simply at the center of someone knocking over a sign in Mexico, which before the internet, before Twitter, no one would have even written a news story on this because it's like, oh yeah, you know, someone knocked over a sign, big whoops, like who cares? 
I do love the fact that they've put a, a troop to guard it. Like no one, this is a crime scene. No one lifted back up. Uh, here's, here's Julio. He's guarding this for seven hours. This is a classic example of how this moment feels like we're in the midst of these big, important things. But then when you have the wisdom to actually see the context and the whole story, it actually felt like nothing. Sometimes it's the opposite. Things which seem like nothing can actually turn into something. And this shows us that despite all our information, our insight is limited. We are caught up in constant reaction. We need a better place to stand from which to understand the world and our lives. And someone helps, someone says to us, we need to move. And the place that we shouldn't stand in is the place of confusion. Someone says, do not place yourself in the company of mockers. Mockers in Hebrews is, is, is lutz which is translated to talk, to boast, or get this, one translation of the Hebrew word lutz is to interpret something arrogantly with pride and no understanding. When I read that translation, I think it so captured our age. Everyone analyzing and interpreting things, but from a vantage point of pridefulness and actually no insight. I think this describes our world at this moment, a confused place of so much sound and fury where at every level from individuals to groups to, to, to nations all join in this discussion and these actions which are arrogant, confused and ultimately fruitless. A high information environment leaves us confused, overwhelmed and disorientated. We need to move to a different vantage point. And Psalm 1 proposes that we move to a different vantage point. We stand in a different place. To read it again, it says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates. And the word in Hebrew is hagah, who hagah, on his law day and night. To translate Hagar, it means a whole bunch of words. Simply the word meditate does not get to the true meaning of what the Bible is saying here. We think of meditate, we think of someone on a beach, perhaps cross-legged, looking very at peace with the world. But actually Hagar is translated as this, to moan, to growl, to utter, to muse, to meditate, yes, but also to devise, to plot, to speak, to imagine, even like a cow chewing on a cud. Hagar is almost a physical, encompassing, fully immersive experience. It's not an idea or a concept that you hold at a distance, but something that you're drawn into. It's a kind of posture for life, a focus, a physical focus of the soul. It's an environment to inhabit and dwell in. And the environment these scriptures are encouraging us to hagar in is the Torah. That's God's divine instructions on how to live. This is the place we are called to plant ourselves in. This is the place we're called to stand to view the world. And what's really interesting is this different place that someone is encouraging us to stand in reminds us of somewhere. It has an echo of something that is written on our souls. To read that second part again, of Psalm 1, it says this, 
And listen to the different metaphors and symbols here. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. These images and concepts point back in the biblical story. People hearing this when this was written would have understood these symbols and these metaphors. They point back to a scene from Genesis at the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 to 9, it says this. And again, look for the symbols in this passage. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put or planted the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of what? Trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. See the similarity of the symbols. In Psalm 1, we have a tree. We have streams of water. We have flourishing and fruit that, that doesn't fail. We have never decaying leaves. We have prosperity. These are Eden-like conditions. So what the psalm is telling us is that when we meditate upon, when we hagar, when we inhabit God's word, when we're shaped by it, when we ingest it, when we do this in God's presence, then we stand in that place. We're in an Eden-like environment. But why Eden? Why stand in Eden? Why is the scriptures encouraging us to go to this place? Well, Ezekiel 28 verses 12 to 13 says this. It locates the origin of what in the Eden? It locates the origin of wisdom in Eden. It notes that Adam was full of wisdom. The verse reads, you are the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. You are in Eden, the garden of God. Eden was a place, an environment in which the first humans were filled with wisdom. And when we stand again in that Eden-like environment, we stand in the place of godly wisdom. Now, before we move on, we really need to examine what is wisdom. We're used to intelligence. We're used to information. We're used to knowledge. You hear wisdom thrown out there sometimes, maybe in a gift shop on a small calendar or a book of wisdom or something that your grandmother said once that people hold up. Well, what's wisdom from a biblical perspective? Wisdom is knowledge of how the world truly works. And what we fail to see often is that so much of the pain, frustration, disappointment in our lives actually comes from a lack of wisdom, either from others or ourselves, showing a lack of wisdom, or actually both. We speak about the results of this all the time, but we rarely name the root cause. Bad governments are bad governments when they don't show wisdom. Dysfunctional people are dysfunctional when they don't have wisdom. Our lives are painful because of a lack of wisdom. The theologian and biblical scholar Greg Beale describes wisdom as the knowledge of how the cosmos, that's everything, operates under God's providential guidance. It's the manual. It's the rule book. It's the schematic plans. 
for how everything works. The magnificently named Tremper Longman III says it in this way, at the, heart of God's, at the heart of wisdom is God himself. Apart from God, there is no true insight into the world. God is the only source of true wisdom. So therefore, for humans to flourish, to truly function in our God-given identity and roles, we need godly wisdom. There cannot be growth, personal, spiritual growth. There cannot be character without the attainment of godly wisdom. Yeah, what's interesting is in that passage in Ezekiel, and it's speaking of Adam being filled, full rather, of wisdom, it speaks about it in the past tense. Why? What's happened? Where did this wisdom go? How did humans lose the fullness of wisdom? Well, wisdom was actually lost at the fall when sin comes into the world. To understand this, we must return to one of the key images in the passage that we read at the beginning of this sermon. Someone speaks of a tree. We have to return to the images of trees. Trees are symbolic of God. In the Bible, they speak as a symbol, which is like a ladder to heaven. You think of the canopy of a tree reaching up into the sky, filled with fruit. You think then of the earth, that's the heavens, and then you think of the trunk in the world, and then the, the, the roots going deep into the earth. They are in the words of biblical scholar James B. Jordan, and I love this little term, arboreal theophanies. Arboreal is a tree. A theophany is an appearance of God. They're a kind of biblical language, living ladders to heaven. And we see this all through the story of the Bible. It's trees are stars of the Bible, if you like. They're one of the key players. There are the two trees in Eden. In the temple, in the tabernacle, there was the lampstand, the menorah, which was a symbol of the tree of life. There's a tree in the garden city that comes at the end of the age in the book of Revelations. Trees are key parts of the Eden-like environments that God creates throughout the scriptures for us to find wisdom and discernment, the wisdom and discernment we need to flourish. To make this as clear as possible, Eden was an environment filled with wisdom and trees are symbols which point us back to this wisdom. And just think about the structure of Eden. Greg Beale again writes this, the tree in Eden seems to have functioned as a judgment tree. The place where Adam should have gone to discern between good and evil and thus where he should have judged the serpent as evil and pronounced judgment upon it as it entered the garden. And we see this pattern in other parts of the scriptures. For example, in the book of Judges, we have this prophetess and leader in the early people of God called Deborah, who actually is a judge and she brings godly wisdom and judgment and discernment to the people. Where does she do it? Underneath the tree, in an Eden-like environment. So humans, therefore, living, acting out their true calling, are called to be royal priests, dispensing wisdom and discernment under the trees in the Eden-like places. Why are they Eden-like places? Because God's presence is there. Trees signaled the environment of wisdom and holiness that we as humans are called to inhabit. Yet something goes wrong. Genesis 3.6 says, 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. She has wisdom. She has fullness of wisdom, but she desires knowledge. She desires something here. And as Edward Welch observes at this point, what happens is in Adam and Eve, desire replaces discernment. And desire rather than discernment begins to rule the first humans. And what is this desire? This desire is for wisdom without God. We want to take the wisdom that God gives us, but we want to take it out of the place that God has placed it. We want to take the knowledge of how God's world works, but then get rid of God. Why? So we fall for the temptation that the serpent put before Eve, so we can be like God's. This is an ancient thing, but it's actually very modern. The essence of the modern world is to be the most knowledgeable people we can the most informed people, the most intelligent people, the most credentialed people to have the power to change the world. We want the fruit of wisdom, but without the faithfulness. You think about a tree, you remove a tree from its environment, you cut off its water supply, you remove its roots, you chop it down, and a tree which was a living thing, a ladder from earth to heaven becomes what wood. And scripture continually warns that wood is something that you can make idols out of, idols which cannot speak, nor wisdom, nor discernment. And what our world does is take knowledge, good knowledge often, but we turn it into a kind of idol. The fall into sin, therefore downgraded and robbed us of wisdom. Disconnected from God, we were disconnected from his wisdom. This is why later in Ezekiel, In chapter 28, in verse 17, it's speaking of Adam. It says, your heart became proud on the account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. The same words could be used to describe our contemporary world. We're the smartest technically we've ever been. We know more stuff than we've ever known. But look at our world. One of the great projects of philosophy, of academia, of diplomacy, of politics began in our world in 1945 as the world came to grips with what happened in supposedly the most educated, the most intelligent part of the world as it saw itself at that time was Europe. And so much of philosophy and politics and the United Nations and how we rule everything and how we teach people at university all came from how do we not repeat what happened in the concentration camps that we discovered in 1945. And all this stuff, all this intelligence and building up of knowledge. Yet this morning, if you, like me, looked at the news in the heart of Europe again, images of civilians shot in streets, finding of mass graves, the war crimes that we've seen on our news, it's still happening despite all of the information and intelligence that we have. We are still bereft of wisdom. The scriptures have a hope 
as we read through the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And the hope is that despite this falling away of wisdom, this degraded wisdom that humans come, that an answer will appear. And the answer will appear in the form of a God-sent king who is filled with wisdom, who will then lead a kingdom of royal priests who also have wisdom and holiness. And there are moments in the scriptures where the people of God seem to get close to getting back to that wisdom. Perhaps Solomon, the great king, was the closest. We read in 1 Kings chapter 4 that Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the peoples of the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else and his fame spread to the surrounding nations. What did he do? Well, he spoke, he wrote, so he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. Notice this little tree, wisdom, little, I love these little biblical bits that you've got to have an eye for. But remember, wisdom, Eden, trees. Verse 33, he spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about the animals and the birds, reptiles and fish. From all the nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. And this wise king, Solomon, creates the most amazing temple, a replica of Eden, complete with trees etched into its walls. The presence of God fills this space. He seems to be the embodiment of what everyone was hoping for, this Adam-like great wise king who'd return to wisdom. Yet if we read on, we discover that even the wisest man forgets. In 1 Kings 11 verse 7, it says, As Solomon grew old, he did what God had told him not to do, which was to marry other women, marry into the nations. And it says, His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. Again, just as it had with Adam and Eve, Desire replaced discernment. Solomon steps then out of the Eden-like environment and we see these rolling crises come to the people of God and they wait and they wait. They wait for a king filled with wisdom to come from God to show them the way back to wisdom. Proverbs 8 speaks mysteriously of a figure of wisdom who existed before the creation of the world. The biblical story is aching for a figure of wisdom to come. John the Baptist speaks of someone coming of whom he is not even fit to tie up their sandals. And this figure comes and it doesn't look like the world expects it to look like. It looks like a young guy, Jesus in, Matthew gospel, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus spoke of people coming from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon's wisdom. But then he tells what are supposed to be the smartest, most wise people of that time, this group of rabbis and Pharisees and teachers of the law. He says, quote, something greater than Solomon is here. And it was true. A new manifestation of godly wisdom was there. It was in every situation in Jesus' life, the dramatic moments, the ordinary moments, that we see the wisdom of God displayed in the actions of Jesus. He is walking wisdom amongst humanity. 
This is why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, writes, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. With Jesus coming then, we must ask the question, how does Jesus coming then allow us to go back to the place of wisdom? How do we return to the Eden-like environment? What about all the sin, our choice of swapping out discernment for desire? How do we overcome this, the fact that we were unable to enter back into Eden because of the flashing swords of the cherubim when humans fell? Well, Jesus shows us the way back. Adam was called to exercise justice and wisdom between the trees in the Garden of Eden, but he sinned and disobeyed. And not in a garden, but in a garbage dump known as Golgotha. Jesus, the King of Wisdom, comes. His coronation is not on a throne. He is held up on a tree, stripped of its branches, cut off from its roots. And there he ministers, just like in the Old Testament, in Genesis, we have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, where humans were originally called to actually minister in that place. We find Jesus between two trees, two other crosses. Jesus, the second Adam, resists sin. Whereas Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeys. Jesus ministers and brings justice between the two trees. And on Resurrection Sunday, Mary going to the tomb, expecting it to be filled, finds it empty. She mistakes the risen Jesus for a gardener. Why? Because he's actually turned the graveyard into a garden. He is showing Mary and then the whole of humanity the way back to wisdom. For those who follow Jesus, the wisdom found in Eden can now be experienced anywhere. We can be trees planted by streams of water. And so this lens. We need in this world the return of wisdom. We need it as individuals. We need it as a community. We need it as a country, as a city. We need it as the world. So four things, real quick. Two, partake in this return of wisdom as we remember Jesus bringing the wisdom of God to us. The first thing I would like to encourage you to do is to claim your role. All of you have different personalities, traits, responsibilities, vocations, relationships, but what every one of you is created is in the image of God. That's not just about a physical resemblance, that's also about a role. You are called to be royal priests. What do royal priests do? Royal uh, stewards of God actually are uh, embodiments of God's justice and wisdom in the world. Just as Deborah brought wisdom underneath the tree, we're called to bring wisdom in the world. And we're called to mediate, priests mediate. We're called to bring the wisdom of God into every situation. The second thing we need to do at this moment, the world is heading into dangerous waters. The leaders of the world seem bereft of wisdom, of how to deal with the cavalcade of crises that are coming before us. We, the people of God at this time, must cry out, for God's wisdom, 
Cry out for wisdom amongst our leaders, amongst those in power. Cry out for justice, but we need both justice and godly wisdom. Justice without godly wisdom ultimately becomes merciless, brutal, and ultimately evil. Thirdly, we need to choose the path of wisdom and character. Knowledge, life hacks, all of this stuff, everything that we have, we have this idea that if we have this knowledge and information, the more of we have it, the more we can create the world as we want it to be for ourselves. What wisdom does is it turns that upside down. When we have information and knowledge, we can change the world. But when we have wisdom, wisdom changes us. Wisdom is what builds character. Choose the path of wisdom. Choose to be a gatherer and a harvester of wisdom. Go seek it out. We are obsessed with the latest. As I said, when I had my story about Cancun Airport, what I was probably hoping for is that something big was happening in Cancun Airport and I could ring someone up and say, hey, check out what's happening in Cancun Airport. I'm in the know. I have the hottest relevant information at that time. We have so much information that seems important for a moment. No one in 70 years is going to be talking about Will Smith at the Oscars. It'll be some fact in Trivial Pursuit as you play it in the metaverse. But wisdom is timeless. Wisdom is something which lives on. Wisdom is true in every age. There's something eternal about it because it reflects the eternal knowledge of God. So choose the path of wisdom and character. So first of all, claim your role, cry out for wisdom in the world. Choose the path of godly wisdom. But lastly, and this is really key, contend. Contend is to struggle. Paul, in his letters, reminds us that the world sees the wisdom of God as foolishness. If you pursue wisdom, you're going to find tension with the world. You're going to find people who look at you like you're an idiot. There is a spiritual war and a battle between the wisdom or philosophy of the world and the wisdom of God. That's why we walk the kingdom way. The kingdom way is the upside down kingdom. Claim your role. You're created in the image of God to live and mediate wisdom everywhere in the world. Let's cry out at this moment for God's wisdom in the world. Let's choose the path of wisdom and character. Let's contend for wisdom in our lives. Let's contend it for it in the church. We need wisdom, godly wisdom in the church. Church crises that we see everywhere at the moment. So often the root of that is actually a lack of godly wisdom when we actually swap out the wisdom of God and instead we choose the measurements and philosophy of the world versus the wisdom of God. And we need to contend and pray and intercede that our lives will be formed by the wisdom of God, that we may be like trees planted next to streams of living water operating from Eden-like conditions. As the Eden-like conditions slowly spread across the world until Jesus returns and ends the age. Let's stand and let's pray.
God, we just want to say as a corporate group that we, we want, we need, we pray for your godly wisdom. God, we think about the ways in which we've been unwise. We think about the ways that we've been hurt by others that have been unwise. We think about the decisions made in the world, in our group of friends, in our lives, even this week, that are marked by a lack of wisdom, and we pray for a filling of your wisdom. God, we know that we walk your path, that sometimes we face difficulties, sometimes we face struggles, but we know, Father, that in the midst of that, when we turn to you, that we gain wisdom. God, we want to just confess when we've swapped out desire for discernment, the things of the world rather than the one who made the world. And to God at this moment, may you mark us as people of wisdom. As we step forward as individuals, we step forward as the church, may we be marked by your wisdom. I want to pray, Father, for that tension point between the world and your wisdom. It used to just come across us sometimes, but it's a constant battle now. I want to pray, Father, that that snake's temptation that we see in the garden of constantly tempting us away from your wisdom towards controlling knowledge in our own strength, to the whispers, the accuser, the tempter that comes in our ear in so many different forms. Jesus, do you want to pray against that in your name? And if the whispering deception of the wisdom of the world has taken parts of our hearts at this moment, we want to actually turn that around in your power. May we actually have your wisdom at this moment. I want to pray, Father, for those in the room who are older, we've gained wisdom. May we pass that on to those who are hungry for it. Show us of all the different experiences that we've had of what is actually your wisdom and how do we pass that on down the generations. Father, I want to pray for the young who can be so confused at times and, and we often lack wisdom when we're young. Father, I just pray that you'll mark the young by a discernment which can recognize your wisdom versus the wisdom of the world. May people speak of people in this room in our church and say there's something different about them. May they be marked as walking wisdom because they're walking in your steps. Jesus, we want to walk in your way. You are God's wisdom. Mark us with wisdom, we ask and pray in your name. 